Hey, what's going on? It's Chris Carino. This is the Voice of the Nets podcast. The other night, the Nets played the Orlando Magic. It was Saturday night, December 2nd. And this was Mikel Bridges' stat line in the first quarter of the game. He played all 12 minutes of the first quarter, had 26 points, 8 of 11 shooting, 3 for 3 from behind the arc, 7 of 8 from the free throw line. He was a plus 21 in the first quarter. Here's how we would finish the game. 42 points, 12 of 20 shooting, 15 of 18 from the free throw line. That's a, that's a career high for him in free throws made. He finished the game a plus 26. And the Nets beat the Orlando Magic 129 to 101. And this is an Orlando Magic team that had won nine in a row. And they came into Brooklyn that night with the aspirations of setting a franchise record. It would have been their 10th straight win. They hadn't lost a game since the Nets beat them at Barclays Center uh, two weeks prior to that. Now, I know it was a tough back-to-back for the Magic. They played the night before, but the Nets came in and took care of business and got a win against a really good team and have beaten the Magic now twice by 20 or more points. A Magic team that, after that game, was 14-6 and on the year. The Nets sit at 10-9 and after that game. A little break here. We're recording this before they play the Atlanta Hawks, and, and then they come home for a game against Washington. Then it's out on the road for six straight games, including five straight on the West Coast. The perspective for this game, though, is, is the game that it was following. The game that it was following was maybe the most frustrating game of the year because they lost a high-scoring game to the Charlotte Hornets. Gave up 129 points to the Charlotte Hornets. Everybody came into this year thinking the Nets are going to be a lot better defensively. And they might struggle to score a little bit. It's been the opposite. Most nights, they're scoring pretty easy. Certainly their metrics, I mean, their rebounding is, is amongst the league best. They're scoring at a very high level. Their offense is cooking. But defensively, they haven't played that well. And going into the season, we talked about how this net team you know, their mantra of be relentless, that applied to the defensive end. They need to come out and play hard. They've established an identity of a team that plays hard and can beat anybody on any given night, but they really have to focus and pay attention to details. Or you don't come out with that kind of effort and focus and intensity, you end up losing at home to the Charlotte Hornets. And it was frustrating to fans because it was a great homestand. I mean, the Nets were 4-1 and one on a five-game homestand but lost a game against a team they should have beaten in the Charlotte Hornets. After that Charlotte game, Jacques Vaughn was not happy. You know, no Jacques a, a very long time, and, and normally, even after a loss, when he's up on that podium speaking to the media, he's a pretty affable guy, pretty straightforward, doesn't seem to get too high or too low. But after that game against Charlotte, he was, he was miffed. He was upset. He didn't rant and rave and scream and yell or be rude to anyone, but he was curt. And you could tell that that performance against Charlotte bothered him. There's a lot of talk about the end of that game. They got a good look to try and win the game. You know, they got it up the floor, got a look that against a defense that wasn't set that they might not have gotten if they had to inbound the ball against a set defense. Cam Johnson missed a three at the end. They could have won the game. They didn't get it. They lost the game. But they didn't lose the game on the Cam Johnson shot. They lost the game because even though they got a great stop near the end of the game when they needed it, they didn't get enough stops throughout the course of the night. And if Jacques Vaughn appeared upset with the media after the game, 
or in his press in his post game press conference, I'm sure it was a much harsher tone in the locker room. And when you want to look at a team and how they respond to a coach, look at how they respond the next game after something like that. And that leads us to that game against Orlando. They came out right from the start and got on Orlando and never let him up. Yes, the Magic got it back to single digits in the third quarter. Stencer didn't when he went on a little personal 9 nothing run or nine straight points that he scored and kind of got the lead back to double digits, and then the Nets had a comfortable win against Orlando. A good Magic team. But I read you those numbers by Mikel Bridges to start the game. Mikel Bridges has emerged as a leader for this team. And what leaders do is when they have a situation like this, coming off a performance like that Charlotte game, leaders come out the next game and set the tone early. And that's what Mikel Bridges did. He came out against Orlando and he set the tone. His 26 in the first quarter, the highest scoring first quarter in the NBA, since February of 2022 when Luka Doncic did it. It was the most points by a net in the first quarter in their franchise history. Now, these, these numbers go back to the 96-97 season. They don't go all the way back. Right? Dr. J may have had a big first quarter in an ABA game, but the play-by-play only goes back to 96-97. So that's where these numbers go back to. But since that time, very long period of time, a few generations, Mikel Bridges' 26-point first quarter, the most in franchise history, going back to when they started keeping that stat. He had 34 at the half because he took a long rest in the second quarter. It's the highest scoring half in the NBA this season. Second most in a first half by the Nets. Kyrie had 41 in that 60-point game a couple of years ago. Also against Orlando, by the way. It was tied for the third highest scoring quarter in Nets franchise history, going back to the late 90s. Joe Johnson, incidentally, has that record, 29 in 2013. But all of that means that Mikel Bridges played like a star. You know, late in the game, he was closing. ISO plays against Franz Wagner and getting buckets and going to the line. Matched, you know, got that career high from the free throw line for him. He played like a star, and he played like a leader, which he is. And the Nets got got a really good win against the Orlando Magic and go 4-1 and on the homestand and go to 10-9 and on the season. And now, you know, getting set up for a difficult stretch of the year coming up. And, and that leads us to our guest today, uh, Jake Fisher, senior, senior NBA reporter at Yahoo Sports because he wrote an article recently about Mikel Bridges and, and really kind of a, uh, a zoomed-out look of what, you know, Mikel Bridges means to the Nets and what his – budding stardom and his leadership ability and his likability, what it can do for this franchise going forward. So it, it was a great opportunity for us to, to get Jake Fisher on the show and have a nice conversation about the Nets and Mikel Bridges. So uh, here's Jake Fisher of Yahoo Sports on The Voice of the Nets. Jake Fisher Joined Yahoo Sports last year as an NBA reporter, senior NBA reporter after covering the league for Sports Illustrated. Bleacher Report, Jake, uh, has an article out in Yahoo a couple of weeks ago that prompted us to give him a call and say, hey, come on to the voice of the Nets. It was a, an article entitled, While Mikel Bridges is the Talented, Malleable Force Players Want to Roll With. And just your use of the word malleable <laughs> makes me 
want to have you come on the voice of the Nets, Jake. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Mikhail is a, a really talented player. He's got a really versatile skill set and just a, a glue guy personality that you don't see in too many all-star caliber players. So he was someone I wanted to, to highlight a little bit. Yeah, and, and malleable. He's, 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 he's able to be mouthed, whatever that means. But he, yeah, I know what you're saying. He's, a, <laughs> he's kind of a – you talk about a glue guy. Um, it was interesting the other day that he went on Taylor Rook's podcast and said, you know, he'd been disappointed about the way he's playing defense, that he knows mm -hmm. he has this defensive reputation, and yet, you know, maybe trying to be that offensive player, he's lost a little bit on the defensive end. I think more so than the subject matter of how has he been defensively, I think it more speaks to his accountability mm -hmm. and being a leader and really what's at the core of what the Nets seem to have in Mikel Bridges. Yes, definitely. And, and that's something that Jay Wright, the former head coach of Villanova, who Mikhail won two championships with, that's something he told me, you know, not just about Mikhail, but about Jalen Brunson and about Josh Hart and, and other Villanovas that have Villanova players that have had success at, at this league level. He said in particular with Mikhail, though, that, you know, he wanted to make sure that Mikhail stayed true to who he is and, that's definitely being that lunch pail guy on the defensive side of the ball who no matter what is going to be able to make a winning play for you. And that was something that we've seen him be able to do from being just a freshman on that first title team or Chris Jenkins hit that game winner to then when he had a significant upperclassman role on the team that's just, that just kind of steamed through the NCAA tournament in 2018. So, yeah, I, I think – and it was also interesting in talking to him and hearing other people talk about him when he just first came to Brooklyn in general and the idea of him having to take more of an offensive role, he didn't look at it as an opportunity to just like go get his and become a star. Hmm. He really looks at things so simply as, well, for order, in order for us to win, someone's got to score 10 more points. I'm like, I think it yeah. should be me. It, it sounds like the room. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds cliche. It kind of sounds a little bit like, what you're supposed to say, but he is a guy who does look at the game and look at a team structure as what you're supposed to do. And that's to overall help the, the winning goal of the entire group. Well, he also got a little taste of it and, and maybe a little confidence that he could be that scorer. The, his final months there in Phoenix, mm -hmm. when Devin Booker was out with an injury, they, they asked Mikel to do a lot more on the offensive end and it was something he was kind of blossoming into, and I think you could see that he enjoyed it and then carried that over when he came over to Brooklyn. Devin Booker was hurt. Jay Crowder, if people recall, was not even with the team after yeah, Monty Williams said that Cam and Cam were going to be yeah. starting. Yeah, so – and Cam, Cam had a hip injury himself. So there, there was a ton of opportunity for him to work on the ball. And he, he said it to me. I think he said it on Paul George's podcast over the summer that – the deal came at the right time of his career because he was kind of not auditioning, but kind of rehearsing for that elevated ball handling opportunity that, that Brooklyn gave him upon day one. You know, he likes to go to that left side of the paint. He has that, that shot where he's kind of falling back and away to his left along the baseline, but he's got such mm -hmm. great touch, but guys are going to start to attack that. Um, and I understand. And I think, I think he has that self-awareness to know though, that that's something he's got to work on. Yeah, he does have his pet shots. Like you can kind of close your eyes and think of him taking a couple of dribbles and hanging and fading yeah. in the lane. And with those long tough. arms, man. Yeah. Long arms. And with the long legs, he's got 
I, I, I think it'd be hard. You'd be hard pressed to find a highlight of him in the open court, not Euro stepping his way into a finish. He's always kind of using that tricky footwork too. So the ball handling aspect, I think with all that length, it's been easy for him sometimes just to use his body and a, a control of the ball to get places. And now that he has the number one defensive assignment, I mean, it's something that it's a very different situation, but something Jordan Poole is dealing with in Washington. And when you get those types of defenders, when you get, you know, I have the Raptors game up right now because I'm watching it, uh, the Cleveland game. Uh, I've been watching it all background t- today before they play Brooklyn tonight. Like when OG Ananobi's on you, when, when Lou Dort is on you, when, when players who are of McHale's class are now in your own pocket and trying to crowd your space, it is harder. So I do think he's, he's taking on that challenge well. There's going to be growing pains for sure, but I, I'm bullish that he's going to continue to uh, progress in that area. The thing that makes Mikelbo unique is that, you know, unlike Jordan Poole, who may be now at the top of the scouting report for other teams offensively, uh, Jordan Poole was never – the guy guarding the other team's best offensive player. Mikel sure. can be that guy. Nets have other guys that can do that, which I think helps him in that regard. But, you know, he he's called upon now to guard the best perimeter player on the other team. And, I, you know, you talk to Jay Wright for the article. I talked to Jay Wright for the podcast back during the summer. And he said, you know, big thing was, you know, can Mikel stay out of foul trouble, which he has done, but it does take a lot out of you. There's a reason why guys aren't always the best on both ends of the floor. You know, I mean, unless you're LeBron James or Kawhi Leonard, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do because you, you know, I think Mikel could, could, it's, you know, you save a little energy uh, on the offensive end when you know you got to dig in on the defensive end. Especially in today's game where he's guarding perimeter players, he's guarding Damian Lillard and he's guarding Donovan Mitchell and he's discarding a lot of jitterbug high pick and roll point guards, you're slamming into a seven footer who weighs 260 to 280 pounds play after play after play. Who's their whole job is to stand there and crack you. That's not an easy thing to do when you can see someone like Steph Curry can kind of hide in the corner and wait. And then he gets to run wild on the offensive side of the ball. And the thing you point out when you you talk about that with Mikel, obviously one of his greatest abilities is his availability. I mean, mm-hmm. every game of his of his NBA career, his college career, going back to high school. And it's not like the guy doesn't have any bumps and bruises and couldn't maybe use a day off here and there. But his ability to stay on the floor, um, I think also, you know, sets the tone. I mean, you talk about building culture. I mean, he's a culture guy. I think he kind of sets the tone in that regard, too. Yeah, and that's that's kind of really why I wanted to highlight him, because if we're thinking big picture – and everyone in NBA front office is. Mikhail is someone that I think Brooklyn was really excited to have for who he is, but also for who he could help attract. Who are going to look at what the Nets are building and look at maybe what Cam Thomas can continue to become once he fully becomes healthy. You know, Ben obviously is having some continued back issues, but Simmons was starting to showcase some more fluidity and whatnot. But I do think regardless of the other foundation behind him, Mikhail is a guy that I think I remember Milwaukee years ago before they went out and got Drew Holiday, they wanted to trade for Bogdan Bogdanovich and a sign and trade with Sacramento. Some early reporting came out, the deal got quashed. But Giannis 
looked at Bogdan and said, that's a guy I want to go to war with. That's a guy I want on my side. And I, Mikhail is definitely someone who plenty of stars and plenty of just top talents are going to want to look at in that same way. I saw it when I was in Manila for the World Cup all throughout this summer in August. He was one player that had a secret handshake with every single guy on the team. He was the favorite of the coaching staff. He, he was the, the last starter Steve Kerr would leave in for bench units. He is just a guy that a lot of people want to be around for his personality, but also for how he plays on the court. He's an energy giver, Jake. He's an energy. There's the energy givers and there's energy takers. He's an energy mm-hmm. giver. And you saw that. You mentioned his time in Manila. Um, I mean, just go to that. Let's go to that. I mean, going and playing for Team USA in in the World Championships, I mean, he was added that to that team for a reason and kind of fit next to Anthony Edwards. And you could see what, you know, if we look at the forest from the trees right now with this net team, um, you could see that role playing out. And that's how you kind of want the nets to model what was going on. I know the U.S. team didn't have the results that they wanted. That was no fault of of Mikel Bridges. And even Anthony Edwards, I think, benefited from playing next to Mikel Bridges. Yeah, he's going to take the top defensive assignment like we talked about. He's going to be able to knock down open threes and provide space for a primary ball handler. He's going to be able to relieve that primary ball handler and go get his own. He's going to be in a run, pick, and roll. He can set the screen and be a role man for that guy and make plays and keep the defense honest. To go back to that word malleable, he is such a versatile weapon on the offensive side of the ball, and he likes to let you know about it after he hits a (laughs) three-pointer. Which is something in your article uh, that you wrote about Mikel that he he got from campaign, right? So campaign back in Oklahoma City, people may remember, was pretty infamous for his pregame dances with (laughs) Russell Westbrook. And so it seems like the handshake and these kind of ritual things that, you know, it's 82 games. It's, you know, these guys are all blessed and, and lucky and they feel that way and grateful to have their jobs, but it is a grind to get up night after night and you're yeah. in your fourth city and, and five nights and you don't remember what hotel room you're in and you don't even know where you're going the next day. You're just trying to get through what's in front of you to be able to have some type of fun connectivity, something that, that gets you going and gets you hyped for a game is important for these guys. And Cam and Mikhail were always sending little hand gestures and whatnot that they saw on Instagram and Mikhail apparently one night sent Cam a video of a baseball team kind of making a similar, you know, pistol gesture towards the I dugout. Think it was, uh, I think it was Manny Machado with the yeah. uh, San Diego Padres. Yeah. There you go. I, I, I was not able to confirm the detail of what team it was. So that's some good, good co-reporting by you. And um, <laughs> yeah, I think from there, Cam kind of helped him with that head wag and it just kind of blossomed. It, 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 it turned him into... I think even more of like an established, this is this is a type of guy in this league that you're going to have to care about and, and really pay attention to. And he's going to be on the opposing scouting report. And I, I also think this is the other part of it. And sometimes when he does that celebration, he'll do it to the crowd. He'll do it to his bench. He'll look to the other team's bench sometimes too. You know, guys are chirping usually on the bench, especially if he makes a three from the corner in front of the opposing bench. Yeah. I think there's that if there's one... And you could you could see if you share this this assessment with him. If there's one misconception about Mikel is that he's just this super nice guy who, if you hit him <laughs> over the back of the neck, that he's just gonna like you know smile at you and and shake your hand. Like 
I've seen him when he gets hit or or he doesn't get a call. Like there's a little edge part of Mikel. He's a competitor. For sure. And you you wouldn't get to this level of play without having that fire in you. He I for, I honestly I'm sorry, I'm blanking on which game it was, but there was one game in the early stages of the tournament where he just came out and he was the reason that USA won. He scored something in in the upper 20s. I remember asking Jalen Brunson after the game. To me, it was such a – like this team, that team needed someone to go do that. They needed someone to not care what the situation was and just go out there and get buckets. And that's what he did in Brooklyn. And people weren't expecting it. And he wasn't the guy on that – you know, people thought Jalen Brunson, Brandon Ingram, Anthony Edwards. Like there are plenty of other – high scoring options on that team that were supposed to be the ones to go get the Americans a bucket when they needed it. And it was Mikhail who stepped up and did it. And I asked Jalen about that. You know, when did you see that killer instinct in him? And he said, it's always, always had it. Like from day one at Villanova, he's been like the hardest guy going in practice. The one that Josh Hart was having problems with and they would get in like little skirmishes. Josh yeah. would foul him really hard on, fast break runouts because they had like a big East, you know, no layup rule, but you don't want to do that in practice. But Mikhail was such a good defender that it bothered Josh enough to, you know, kind of pay it back a little bit. So he's been that type of fiery competitor for a long time. There's a great quote I always said, you know, don't mistake kindness with weakness. You know, Mikhail's a kind guy, but he's a strong character when he's on the court. Um, we're talking again with Jake Fisher, Yahoo uh, sports and, and, you know, you're t- looking far from the trees here again, outwardly. These are all the things that maybe make Mikel attractive to play with other, you know, other players may want to play with him. He doesn't really seem to, at least, at least outwardly and publicly kind of downplays that aspect. We don't know what he does privately in his relationships with players around the league, but he seems to be a guy that's like, well, the process, you know, Control the process and all mm-hmm. that other stuff will will take care of itself. Yeah, again, he kind of speaks in cliches because cliches are simple and he does he looks at this game and this world very simply. If I win, if I work hard and build something here, someone will want to come join me. I think he is wanting to walk the walk and kind of use what he does on the court as an advertisement as opposed to someone who's talking bigger and louder than his bite actually is. Yeah. And, and you know, I also struck me when he first came to the Nets is, you know, we talk about his self-awareness and, and that simplicity when he got up there on the podium with Cam Johnson, the first night they were introduced to the Nets media and he basically was him and Cam were like, well, we kind of knew like, we got the the idea in our head a while back that we might end up in Brooklyn because if Kevin Durant wants to go to Phoenix, we're, we're going to Brooklyn. Like they, they were aware of that. They had that self-awareness sure. and, and yeah. And, and then, you know, it didn't seem like it was, he was, he was shocked and he was upset to leave his friends, but you know, it seemed like he really was eager to embrace the challenge. He had gotten used to it for a while. I think. He's an East coast guy. I remember he, really wanted to go to Philadelphia on draft night. His mother had worked for the organization. He's from Philly, big Phillies fan. Like when I interviewed him, I remember it was the day of game three of the world series. He had a big red Phillies hat on. He's, he's a Rams fan though, which is interesting. He, uh, yeah, he fell in love with the greatest show on turf by playing Madden. And (laughs) 
he's still a Rams fan to this day, which doesn't make much sense to me when the Eagles are what they are, but that's neither here nor there. So <laughs> I think the East Coast reunion, he does miss the kind of West Coast NFL schedule, though. He was telling me that. But yeah. I, I mean, and also being across the pond from his former teammates, like across the pond, you know what I'm saying? Across, across <laughs> the East River. Like I do think being so close to, to Jalen and, and Josh, like they have a competitive uh like fire there about like who who's the best team in new york i think he, i think that's a nice challenge that he likes and thinks about too see jake you're a, you're in brooklyn right you live in brooklyn i am i'm coming to you from north uh north northeast williamsburg right now yeah so manhattan's across the pond it's it's yeah. another it's there's a the rivalry the rivalry is even heating up even more now that the nets are in brooklyn uh yeah it is a pond or a pool um but but i will say this though about you, you mentioned you know him you know, you know, that rivalry, that, that grit, that wanting him to come and play, I think it really comes into play with Mikel, um, with, you know, his desire to win because he won at Villanova. You know, here's a guy that won two national champions at Villanova. And some guys, you know, can make you relax and be like, well, I've already won. I don't know. Or, or it spurs you to know, I want to continue to win. And I think that's something that, that drives him as well. I think that Villanova, Jay Wright, Jalen Brunson, Hart, like th- those guys, that that drives you to win. And he came two games shy of winning the the finals too. Yep. It, it, don't yeah, don't forget that. that. That's something that yep. I think sits with all the guys. You know, from Devin Booker to talking to friends I know at the coaching staff to some front office guys like Chris Paul, like people there really they were up two zero and they lost four yep. straight. And they watched Giannis become the darling of the league and the world. And a biography that came out about him became an instant bestseller when they were right there. And I think also like being around Chris Paul in particular for that young team, you know, it's one thing to win games and be a winner, but to really lock in on all the intricacies of you know, the 360 degrees of a game from the officials to the, all the people in the stands to mm all the little inches and margins that other people might not think about. Mikhail got a masterclass in that and they almost won it. They got right there. So he has, he has that taste. He, he, he wants to get back to that level. And, you know, anytime I've talked to him this season, whether it was from the crowd at his media day to one-on-one to just like lingering in the locker room while he's doing stuff, everything's about the playoffs. Like he has a one track mind of making a winning culture with this team. It's not about, Oh, let's just go out there and and play. Like they are there to win. They're there to make the playoffs. They want to make noise in the playoffs. I don't think anyone around Brooklyn has like delusions of grandeur that this team right now is presently comprised is, is going to be as formidable as a championship contender as other teams in the East right now. But they think of themselves as any, as just as good as anyone else, like right behind that, that like top tier. And I think it's, that's evident in the fact that, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday, the 28th, like they're right in the thick of things for the in-season tournament. And yeah. if they get in that environment, I, I would, I would be really curious to see how strong this team can, can look in a single elimination type type of uh, format. Yeah. And I know just from hearing from fans this year, it, you know, coming off the superstar era, there's a, there's a sense of this is a team we could root for. And Mikel is, you know, a big part of that. You know, they just, we want a team we can really get behind. And it's a team that plays hard every night. It's a team that is never out of a game. 
And there aren't really a lot of, you know, there aren't a lot of easy games in the NBA anymore. I feel like no. the talent load is spread out. The, the, the good, there's a lot more good teams. And it, you know, you talk about guys wanting to join other teams. I don't know. Do you, do you see a lot of movement coming up? I know we saw a little less last year. More teams feel like they're good, I feel, at this point. Yeah, I think, I do think we're going to see a lot of movement, but to your point, more like down the scale. There's a, there's a couple of factors where, you know, the play-in tournament absolutely has more and more teams thinking, well, we just got to get the 10 seed and then we have a shot. Mm-hmm. So you already have just by definition, a larger number of teams that are looking to make improvements. Yeah. And in this particular season, there's been a lot of talk from, from my conversations with scouts and executives around the league that this upcoming 2024 NBA draft is not exactly expected to have you know, a real top tier talent. I think we could see a lot of teams trade a late first in this draft, a pick that's expected to be in the 20s to go and get a fifth starter, to go and get a sixth man, to go and get like a seventh man who's just the missing piece that maybe he's in your closing lineup. You know, I'm even wondering, do we start to see some deals go down in December and January as opposed to February because the standings are so locked up and like, do you want to, yeah, keep wait. waiting around and, and, and pausing for your charge up the standings to cement yourself in the playoff pecking order. I think there will be movement, but to your point, I'm not expecting to see Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and then James Harden and, you know, the Demonis Sabonis, Tyrese Halliburton deal from a few years ago, but largely, yeah, this does seem to be a league where we've got 20 to 25 teams right now that really do think they've got a shot to make some noise in their conference. And I do think a lot of those teams are going to be trying to add just like a little bit more to what they currently have. You know, even Jake, when you look at last year, the the heat coming from where they did, you know, as an eight seed and, and going through the play in stuff and, you know, being losing the first play in game and then being down in the second half of the second playing game and they end up going to the NBA finals. So yeah, there's more hope. And that is condemned. And that's probably a little bit of, you know, you wrote a book a few years ago, uh, built to lose, which was about the uh, how the how the uh, how the NBA tanking era changed the league forever, yes, um, sir. right? So a little plug for your book, first of all, Thank and you. I'm sure you can still find it wherever you get books today. It's definitely and, available. And and there's no you know for like the net situation, there's no reason for them to ever want to decide to lose because they don't own their own picks; they own other people's mm-hmm. picks. Um, and the play-in tournament has kind of helped in that regard, too, where teams think they have more of a shot going forward. I want to know, did you explore – I had a simple solution for tank. I don't know if it's so simple, but get rid of the draft. I, I'm sure that, yeah, that it came into your mind and when it came to when you're analyzing what tanking did in the NBA. For sure. You know, I had conversations with people around the league for three years about the subject. So it's one of the natural secondary talking points is, oh, how do we fix it? Right. And just, just like, and this is a pretty stretched analogy, but I was writing it during, during the early days of, of quarantine when you were catching up with any friend, you know, it was like, oh, it's pretty typically conversations would drift towards, but like, well, how do we solve this thing? Even though we couldn't, it wasn't up to us, you know? So yeah. I think it's, that same type of psychology of like, well, there's a problem. There's something that's clearly not working. Well, how do we solve it? And I think from my assessment, like if you want to get rid of tanking, which I'm, I don't necessarily think is a problem, 
Like there's always going to be a bad team. There's going to be someone who's losing 60 games or 55 games that if it's someone who's wanted to do it intentionally, I don't have the big of a problem with it. But if you do, which I also, you know, I understand like that the spirit of the sport is to try to win. It's try to go into an arena every night and expect that your team can accomplish the task at hand. It's not about going and rooting for a loss. Who wants to pay, you know, the, the, escalating prices of today's, you know, live event culture to just expect a team to lose. So I do think the only way to get rid of the issue would be that you need to detach the record and the results from the draft order or from the way that players come into the league. So whether it is getting rid of the draft and you have some type of restricted free agency or you do something like the wheel proposal that Mike Zarin in Boston suggested years ago, um, I do think that those are the only real ways to get rid of tanking because then there's no reason to lose. What's the wheel proposal? The wheel proposal would be kind of like the in-season tournament where every team got separated into six groups, but instead of them playing games, there'd be six individual lotteries. And so every year you'd be ranked between one and six, there'd be a lottery. And then the next year you'd be ranked between 25 and 30 and there'd be a lottery in every group. So there's still you still got the TV event, you still got the ping pong balls, you still got the fanfare, but you're going to know for a five-year scale, you're picking one through six in 2023, and you're picking 25 through 30 in 2024, and then in 2025, oh, wow. you're picking six through 11, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so it's just it's it's like a snake draft in your fantasy league where you know where you're picking, but it doesn't affect, it's not affected by your wins and losses. Eh, that's fascinating. That's pretty that's yeah. interesting right there. I know that getting rid of the draft would be such a, I mean, with the, the players association and what do you do with teams that have accumulated draft picks, you know, six years out, you know, <laughs> that would make a, be very complicated, <laughs> but Hey, they figure something out, like give a little credit or something, a little, you get a little extra salary cap space. If you have, depending on how many picks you have, you know, but I thought it'd be, I think it'd be like let college players go where, play wherever they want, as long as you got the cap space. Oh, I agree. I think the one issue is all right. Well, the Lakers then all of a sudden just get every star rookies. Victor Wembanyama going to L.A. and then Cooper Flags going to L.A. and then so, yeah. so maybe there would have to be some type of still need you know, salary structure. cap space though. Yeah, you yeah, still need space. So yeah, you want to you want to clear out your space to get Wembanyama? Go ahead. But anyway, uh, Jake, we really appreciate you've been you've been generous with your time. Uh, enjoyed reading your article and uh, getting much. to talk to you here. Uh, Yahoo Sports: Why Mikel Bridges is talented, malleable force that uh, players want to roll with. Did you have you rolled with Mikel anywhere in Brooklyn? By the way, no. Like I when he's gone to the bodegas and made those sandwiches and stuff. No, I would like to though. I mean, I, I right. pitched watching watching football with him for the story, and I it, it was it was politely declined. So, it's okay. <laughs> well, maybe it had more to do with the way the Rams have been playing this year, and uh, and I do know you mentioned the the the, the Phillies. We were actually in Dallas um, for the start of the World Series, Game One of the mm. of the World Series, but the, the Phillies didn't make it to the World Series. They were. They were beaten right, by Arizona. Right, right. It was the conference championship. I'm was, sorry. Yeah, yeah it forgive was, me, it forgive was the, me. Uh, the league championship. <laughs> but um, he was ready because we were staying. We had two days off between Dallas and Charlotte. Yeah, The Nets were actually going to be in town for game two with oh, no wow. game. 
So he had already set up like he was bringing a lot of people to the game. Like they were all they were going to game, a suite, watch the game. He didn't get to do He's it. No, disappointed. Yeah, he is. Uh, Jake Fisher, thanks so much, man, for joining us. Really appreciate it. My thanks to Jake Fisher and a great conversation regarding Mikel Bridges. Uh, I'm going to leave you with this stat here on Mikel. He had 42 in that game against Orlando, the fifth career 40-point game for him. All of them have come with the Nets. Um, there have been seven Nets who have recorded 40 or more points at least five times in their Nets, uh, in their Nets career. Vince Carter, 17, that's the most in his time with the Nets. Kyrie Irving did it 14 times. Kevin Durant did it 10 times. Super John Williamson did it eight times. Uh, Mikel's five matches. Cam Thomas, who also has five 40-point games, isn't it? And that's also tied with Bernard King, who had five. Uh, Net fans are very grateful to have Mikel Bridges in the fold. Uh, And remember that when... This is a quote from Neil Donald Walsh. The struggle ends when the gratitude begins. My thanks to Steve Goldberg, our producer, Chelsea Jenkins, our engineer. I'm Chris Carino, and this has been The Voice of the Nets. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum Card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Oh, okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.